Why do we play with fire? Why do we run our finger through the flame? Why do we leave our hand on the stove? Although we know we're in for some pain, oh, why do we refuse to hang a light when the streets are dangerous? Why does it take an accident before the truth gets through to us? Cages or wings? Which do you prefer? Ask the birds. Fear or love, baby? Don't say the answer. Actions speak louder than words. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, March 7th, 2021. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Encore Magazine, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hello. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of CastAlbumReviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at FileSpotPhoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is a very special guest. Jennifer Ashley Tepper is back. Yay! Jen, so for our listeners, Jennifer is a producer of musicals like uh, Be More Chill, Broadway Bounty Hunter, Love and Hate Nation. She's also the creative and programming director at Feinstein's 54 Below and is the author of many untold stories. Talk about, <laughs> we're going to talk about the fourth one today, but the fourth book of untold stories. And uh, she's the creator of the Jonathan Larson Project, which we're also going to talk about, and an historical consultant of the upcoming film version of Tick, Tick, Boom. Tepper was recently named the recipient of the 2020 Lincoln Center Emerging Artist Award. Good morning, Jennifer. Good morning. Thank you for having me back. I, you know, I'm so excited. I feel like you are so busy all the time, and you've given us so much of your time at Broadway Radio. really have to thank you. I mean, I was going through the archive of all the different shows you've been on. I think that you are probably our most visited guest. I oh think God. so. And I think that that's awesome. And I love that because uh, you've, you've done so much for us here at Broadway Radio. Really appreciate it. But so first of all, let's uh, start off with uh, tell us things you can't tell us about Tick, Tick, Boom. <laughs> um, well, you know, you know, thinking about the last year now that we're really about a year from the shutdown, um, it's just interesting to be like, oh, yeah, I worked on a movie during the pandemic. Um, I'm a historian consultant on the Tick, Tick, Boom film. Um, and it's just been, you know, exciting. I have been a part of maintaining Jonathan Larson's legacy through things like the Jonathan Larson Project and, you know, my books. I've done interviews with folks about him. So it's just like another exciting step in the Jonathan Larson legacy journey. I love that you just roll with it. You know, <laughs> because we were, I was, I, I was just kidding. I didn't expect a whole answer to that. So, <laughs> Michael, was, what were you going to say? Oh, it was nice to see you uh, make an appearance in the Rent 25th anniversary uh, fundraiser 
event, uh, uh, online event that they had recently, which was so well done, I thought. Whoever so extraordinary, put, yeah. put it together in terms of the clips and the talking heads and and the uh, and the new performances uh, by uh, y- young artists. Of uh, it, I, I thought it was great the way that they had all, basically almost all of the original cast there as as talking heads but the performances of the few songs from the show were done by people like ben platt and um uh and yeah no they they produced it so extraordinarily it was unbelievable um i helped them with a few things just when they were asking for timelines and facts you know i've just done so much work with his material that it's someone will be like oh did he write this draft of rent in september 1992 and i'll be like no it was october 1992 you know so um it really (laughs) was fun to kind of be around as they were doing that they did such a great job with it Yes. Have you ever found out um, what he might have done had he lived in terms of uh, cutting a song, adding a song? Gee, I think there should be another moment there where anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, his last notebook that he was using up until the day that he died, um, you know, that final dress rehearsal is actually at the Library of Congress where I did all my Jonathan Larson Project research. So it's filled with like, you know, things like Adina, you know, do this song like this and, you know, contact, look at this verse. Um, It's not, there's nothing major as far as clues in terms of what you're asking, but it's just more evidence that, you know, he was a man who had written his first big show that was getting produced the night before it started. He would have made, you know, changes for sure. I, I have a specific question. You may not know the answer. So as, as we all we all know, the incredible story that he did die, I guess, in the early morning hours of the day of what would have been the first preview, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then for some reason, the, the uh, so they canceled the preview uh, proper and instead performed the show for an invited audience. But why do you have any idea why they decided to do it without the staging? Yeah, you know, I think that everyone was just in such shock. And the idea was that they would just gather at the theater to kind of remember Jonathan and sing through some of it. And they didn't want to put the pressure on the cast of like, oh, in addition to this big tragedy, this is also like your first time performing this. Oh, okay. I got you. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. It was just kind of the tone of the day um, that, you know, it was more casual because of that. And then it turned into, of course, this celebration and, you know, them wanting to stage it because they were inspired. <laughs> Let right. me ask you a question, Jennifer. Um, you said that you went down to the Library of Congress and looked at his notebook. Who uses a notebook these days? Mm. You know, it <laughs> will this, in, 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 in 30 years from now, will somebody go back and look at the marginalia of notebooks? Are you using notebooks when you talk about the untold stories of Broadway? You know, it's such a great question. First of all, I have to say, like, most musical theater writers I know do use notepads and notebooks. Oh, you thank know, I've goodness. been in rehearsal a million times with Joe Iconis, clearly, and he's got notebooks, like, everywhere. So I do think that's, um, you know, going to be something that's part of history. But I will say Jonathan Larson, and I went to the Library of Congress for three years to do research for the Jonathan Larson Project, so I spent a lot of time with those papers. Um, and his floppy disks are actually at the New York Public Library. And because mm. he died at such a young age and, you know, his stuff went in there, he's really, like, the first major musical theater um you know legacy that has floppy disks to look at in terms of you're studying the material um you know i would go in and be like oh when did he write this draft of this song from tick tick boom oh he played a game of minesweeper two minutes later you know it's <laughs> <laughs> you do that with like irving berlin like we don't know when he played poker when he was doing any it's such a different um, digital research project um, because of, you know, the timeline of Jonathan Larson. And I think we'll have that with a lot of our musical theater writers now where we'll go, oh, they posted this Facebook status before they went to this preview, you know? 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So tell us about the new book. <laughs> um, my new book comes out. Oh my God, this week, this coming week. It's crazy. So I, you know, it's the fourth volume of untold stories of Broadway. I haven't had a book come out in five years. Cause I got very busy producing and 54 below and all these other things. Um, but I've pretty much, even though I did um, the majority of the interviews prior to quarantine, I pretty much wrote the whole book during this past year. So, um, it's really exciting. I'm just excited for people to actually read it. Um, we have, you know, the seven new theaters cause there's new theaters that we explore in each book and tons of really wild and meaningful stories. Um, I'm just psyched for people to have it in their hands. And the seven theaters are? Uh, we have the Imperial in this book, the Jacobs, the Golden, the Minskoff, the Friedman, Studio 54. Um, and this is actually the book where I finally tackled the five Broadway theaters that were demolished to build the Marriott Marquis. So uh, in each book, we have like a lost Broadway theater. And it took me till volume four to be like, okay, I'm ready to do the Morasco Bijou, Old Helen Hayes. <laughs> <laughs> Parenthetically, I it wasn't till recently, believe it or not, that I, I went back and tried to trace if I had ever seen anything in the Helen Hayes or the Morasco. And I think the only show that I saw uh, was in the was in the Helen Hayes and it was Crucifer of Blood. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I just. Uh, it's. I mean, it's. I'm glad that we have the resources like uh, I am I, IBDB, uh, et cetera, to you know fairly easily check up on things like that. Michael, are you auditioning for an interview for Jennifer? so crazy about really going into those theaters one of the things was that you know they were demolished in 1982 which isn't forever ago but it was still like you know finding a number of like you know different kinds of interviews from people who had worked there it wasn't like finding you know from people that had worked at a theater in the you know 2010 mm. really the more the time that goes by you know i started writing my books in 2013 with the goal that each chapter should start as far back in history as possible and so most of the chapters luckily start in the 40s um and most of the people that told those early stories a lot of them are no longer with us you know you obviously you guys know this but you know just history goes by really fast like the legacy of that you have to capture it so um i was glad to capture the three theaters that were demolished that i could the gaiety and astor you know there's nobody who has worked at those theaters that is still alive so um it just really drove that home for me mm. wow yeah. so um now that you've got four volumes down what's what's next is there going to be a volume five are you thinking about sketching sketching it out yeah, you know, the idea from volume one was like there would always be six because I needed to get to all 41 mm -hmm. Broadway theaters. And we had an idea of like about how many could go in each book. This book is longer because I have to say all of the, you know, essays I wrote and interstitial discoveries like have taken up way more room. I think I'm, you know, hopefully a better writer than I was when I started in 2013. But um, yeah, the volume five and six will be the final two. And I have started sketching them out because the crazy thing is, um, you know, when I started doing interviews in 2013, I did interviews interviews that were about all the theaters. So I have files full of like, you know, here's all the interviews about the booth and they date back to 2013 and none have been published yet, which makes it an interesting time capsule, not only of whatever year we were talking about myself in the interview, but also of the year that the interview took place. Yeah, that's true. I, I, I mean, I'm sure that you've come across 
multiple uh, stories that could not make the cut into one uh, volume or mm. another that you might need to go to volume seven to put those extra <laughs> stories into. Kind of Leftovers. We're going to call a curtain call. Yeah. <laughs> Leftovers. What did you uh, learn that really surprised you when you were dealing with this book in terms of these seven theaters, something that you didn't know before? No. So much, so much. I really, there were so many times writing this book where I was like, oh, here's a parallel to something we're going through right now. Obviously in history, that's always something that pops up and you're like, oh, like the same thing happened yesterday that's happening today. It was just slightly different. So I really did go into like the federal theater project. Um, Uh They had shows um, at the Biltmore, which is obviously now the Freedman. Um, So that was something that had a lot of interesting like um, facts about how that all worked. But it was things like I, you know, Mary Jane McCain, which was at the Imperial, was one of the first big like Broadway radio plays. And at the time, everyone was like, "Oh my God, you can hear Broadway plays on the radio. No one will ever go to the theater again." And of course, the opposite thing happened, where everyone. (laughs) excited about having it in their home and it made them want to go to the theater, which I was like, you know, those are some of the same conversations we hear around streaming a hundred years later. And it was just interesting to find so many little things and big things. It was also, um, you know, in this, I tried to include reviews that um, had elements of like sexism, racism, other problematic things that when we look at them and are able to like come to our own conclusions as we like read about the shows, I think that's kind of helpful in terms of the conversations we're having today. So there were just a lot of things um i did even like studio 54 having studied it as much as i had and worked next to it for so many years there were like really fun and exciting studio 54 discoveries that i came up with um about its heyday not even just as like you know the laser disco days but also as um you know when it was like a nightclub in the 30s and when it was the home of like you know what's my line as a tv studio so that that building endless surprises So uh, let's put on a different hat for you right now and talk about 54 Below. You guys uh, obviously have been closed uh, to the public for about a year, but you've, you've gone online and, uh, and adapted to it. And how does uh, things look um, going forward for 54 Below? What, do you have any sort of soft plans for reopening to the public and in person? Yeah, you know, um, definitely. We have spent a lot of time over the course of the pandemic planning for what might happen when we're able to reopen, um, which we think hopefully will be soon. Um, it's so interesting, just like with everything, where it depends on so many things out of our control, as opposed, like in terms of you know the government and in terms of like safety and um, you know what ends up being possible. But uh, I think you know I have my like dream list in my phone of like these are my dream fifty four below shows for the next era of the Roaring Twenties and. Um, you know, I think it'll be so, so exciting and special to do, you know, musicals and concert of shows that were canceled during the pandemic and, you know, songs that writers wrote during the past year that nobody's heard but them in their apartments in quarantine yet and all kinds of things that will be like really, really special. Um, but just literally seeing anyone on a stage with an audience, I'm I'm psyched for. Um, and, you know, we've had a, a lot of conversations about all things safety, all things um, logistics as far as like coming into this new era, I think we all know for anyone operating a venue or a theater um, that there's going to be a transition time of like, how do we make this work, um, you know, financially, safety wise, logistically, all those things um, in a different way. Like it's not going to be like what it was at the beginning of 2020. So it does seem to me that um, these original cast album type of replications that you were doing, which were phenomenal and great fun and everybody seemed to enjoy. Um, We are going to have more of those. 
Yeah, you know, I what I my prediction is, and of course, no one knows anything for sure, but I do yeah. think in the first few months of anything reopening, I don't think we're going to see um, just because of numbers. You know, when I think about my dreams of like what I want to do when we reopen, some of it, I'm like, are we really going to have, you know, 20 people on that stage as opposed uh-huh. to when we reopen? So I think the initial, and I think that for all venues, that's not just 54 below. I think the initial reopening will be smaller. And then as we test things out and as, you know, the vaccine rollout improves and improves and all those things, I think we'll be able to do bigger and bigger projects. But I do think absolutely like there's something about reunions and I, because of that size thing, I was like, Oh, like, you know, we'll have what two artists, like what collaborators haven't seen each other for the whole pandemic that can reunite as opposed to like a full cast reunion during like the first month of reopening kind of thing. Um, but this is just like, it's minutia. I think that the next era in general is like, people are going to be so happy and excited to be in an audience together and looking at history, like when things reopen after you know, a, not a similar time because there's nothing exactly like this. Right. Yeah. But it's going to be thrilling and exciting. You mentioned earlier, you mentioned uh, Joe Iconis, as, as you may know, uh, they have begun limited live music again at the West Bank Cafe. And Joe and uh, his wife, Lauren Marcus, performed the other night, and I think they're coming back. Uh, I, I thought you might maybe talk about that a little bit and also your, just your involvement in his career. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It was incredible. It was, um, I was there obviously, you know, to watch them and it was so great to just see live music with other human beings. Like yeah. it felt like a miracle. Um, and it mm. was safely done. It was very distanced, you know? Um, yeah, you know, it's been really wonderful to kind of, um, obviously have this like decade of collaboration with Joe and, and think about like what's next. Um, you know, we're still working on love and hate nation. And before the pandemic happened, we were thinking about next steps for that. Um, there's a, you know, a number of things we obviously like have been talking about during the pandemic and he just has new musicals no one's even seen yet like the hunter s thompson musical which um you know he's been developing for la jolla playhouse for a long time and which i really hope will happen in the in the next few years so lots to look forward to there great jennifer let me ask you a little bit about the um uh, the the backstage part of uh what's going on with the pandemic uh has uh, has the mayor's office been in touch with you or the new york state's office uh new york state been in touch with 54 below and how this goes and also in your other realm as a broadway producer ha- uh how has it been communicating with the league and um and what's happening on that end of it you know, because um, at the time that, you know, the pandemic happened, I wasn't actively producing a Broadway show. I haven't been part of those conversations. I've certainly, you know, had the same conversations you guys probably had as far as catching up with people and kind of yeah. trying to figure out what's going on. Um, but so I don't have any special information there. As far as 54 Below goes, um, you know, yes, we've been in touch with, uh, you know, government officials to kind of learn because, um, you know, New York City obviously is so unique in its performance slash restaurant venues. There's some initial questions about like, oh, when restaurants reopen, couldn't we reopen? And the answer is really like, no, performance restaurant hybrids are a totally different animal. So they've been helpful in kind of answering those questions. Um, You know, I think in general, everyone is just really hopeful that the vaccine rollout has, you know, started to get better in a way that hopefully things will become much safer pretty quickly. Um, And so there's a sense of like, you know, I know that restaurants can open at 33%. Um, It would be, you know, obviously better if we were able to safely open at a slightly more higher capacity than that. So yes, no, we've been in touch with, with government officials about figuring out exactly what's safe and possible and when. Uh, did you think about doing some of the outdoor things like Don't Tell Mama is doing? 
You know, it's not really as possible for us. I think mm. um, in general with a lot of these pivoting moments and stopgap things and for everybody, like all the digital, all of the outdoor, it's like you have to really weigh, and I'm not just talking about 54 below, I'm talking about literally everything. Like you have to weigh how much that's going to cost and with how much it's going to help or, you know, what, what it's going to do. And in actuality, with all these venues from the New York City not-for-profits to the regional not-for-profits, all of it, it's like, you know, most of them, in order to do that, you have to rehire employees. You have to like, you know, make all these things happen that in some cases, I think it's like maybe the resources would be better allocated to to reopen it. You know, it's it's those things. So um, we haven't done the 54th Street outdoor thing, which, you know, to tell you the truth, we haven't even, it's not something that we've gone pro and con on. It just wasn't even considered because I think that for us, it's it's better to do kind of what virtual things we're able to and then to focus on the reopening. Okay, we don't hear about too many kids growing up saying, I want to be a producer, maybe Leo Bloom. But I mean, what made you decide this was going to be where you would spend your energies? Um, You know, for me, I never actually really wanted to be a producer. It wasn't like that was the words that I, those were the words I said. I always would say, like, I want to be the theater, which was like, obviously a joke. But, um, you know, I wanted to be a part of making new musicals happen and like celebrating underappreciated musicals and theater history. And um, I kind of was like, I know I'm going to have to carve out my own path that I think involves producing. But, um, you know, I do think that there are younger people all the time who go like, I want to be a producer. And I think that's because producers are more and more visible. But um, yeah, I just knew that I wanted to be kind of like involved in all of those things. And that probably meant being a producer and a theater historian and all these other hats. Okay, theater historian. Now, uh, what I have found is that many younger people uh, aren't very interested in what happened in theater before they were born. Um, But you seem to be very different about that. I mean, here you are mentioning Mary Jane McCain. Um, you know, I mean, really, you know, I, uh, I, I know that come uh, was a come on and pet me uh, comes from that. But I mean, you know, that's a pretty obscure title. Uh, so um, any idea? Uh, do you feel like you've been reincarnated or anything like that that makes you so interested in history where so many of your generation um, doesn't feel that way? You know, what's so funny to me, and I'm sure this is based on who, you know, I know and come in contact with, but I find that like the younger generation is more and more interested in it all the time. And I think it's one of the good things about the internet. Um, you know, our like gigantic Be More Chill fan base, I got to spend a lot of time with like, you know, kids and like teenagers and people in their early 20s. And it's like the people that gravitated towards our show were always like, oh my God, like the Lyceum, I read about that in your first book. Or like, oh my God, like what about this thing? And the people were interested. And I find I'm meeting more and more young people like that all the time. So I do think it's a great thing about the internet. Um, Yeah, as far as I go, I think that growing up in Florida, not near New York and like not able to have access to shows kind of put that I'm going to study it thing on my head pretty early. Um, and that I loved doing that. And I loved reading books and like learning, you know, what was at the Imperial before I ever went to the Imperial. And it, it just kind of grew from there. Well, in fact, um, um, in Encore Magazine, uh, the second one, I have an article about Charles Kirsch, a 13-year-old boy um, who is uh, certainly obsessed with uh, musical theater to the point of which, and I said to him, um, do you know um, who was in Three Rogers and Hart musicals and did a revival? He immediately said Vivian Siegel. Now, that's pretty impressive. Now, the thing is, um, when I wrote the article, the editor, Robert Viaga, said to me, does he have any friends? Is he bullied for feeling this way? Um, were you considered a maverick, a strange kid for uh, being interested in this when your friends in Florida had no idea what you were talking about? You know, crazily enough, like Florida has a lot of, you know, flaws. We'll say it that way. But 
that like Florida does have is because it has this like gigantic retirement, you know, population and the average age where I grew up in Boca was like 75 or 80. Um, it has this thriving theater scene that also like, you know, I went to a public high school, but we did like, you know, eight performances of our high school musical in a 1000 seat auditorium that we sold out because it was like every retirement community in Boca and, you know, surrounding area would come. So by that, I mean to say like, I grew up going to theater camp, doing theater in high school. And it was like, popular in a weird way you know I wasn't um it was I I certainly wasn't like hey I'm you know going to the football games but I think that those stereotypes are only a little bit true and in fact in my high school like all the theater kids were kind of cool in that way um I I was definitely the weirdo that was like hey everybody let's listen to last five years instead of the radio but it was more people being like oh cool what's that than it was like we're gonna you know ostracize you for that Jennifer Mm -hmm. I never thought to ask you this um but did you know Jan McCarthy you know, I didn't, I didn't know her. I saw her in shows a couple times and, you know, certainly knew who she was and thought she was like, you know, a legend. But I never worked with her or knew her personally. What are your favorite roles in high school? Are you actually in shows? I'm getting the impression you were. You know, one of the real fun answer to that is that I won a state championship for Florida Thespians when I was in high school um, for basically imitating Annal Nathan's Tony performance from Fairly Modern Millie from, uh-huh. <laughs> um, you know, for, for Thespians, you do, you know, different categories like solo musical, great musical. We did Forget About the Boy. And I, I truly copied everything she did. And then uh, last year or two years ago at this point, producing Broadway Bounty Hunter, where she played the bounty hunter at matinees, I would just sit with her and we would laugh about that. So full circle. But um, as far as high school shows, I used usually was in the ensemble. I was like so thrilled to be like, you know, in 42nd Street and Funny Girl, like just the camaraderie of being in shows. Um, I never really wanted to be an actor, but I really loved that, like being in a cast experience. You know what's not fair? The fact that Netflix hides thousands of shows and movies from you based upon your location and then has the nerve to increase their prices on you. That's right. They've just raised their prices once again. Now you could just cancel your subscription in protest, or you could be smart about it and make sure you're getting your full money's worth by using ExpressVPN like I do. See, you might not know that what's on Netflix in your country is completely different from what's on Netflix in the UK or Japan has on theirs. Using ExpressVPN, I can control which country I want Netflix to think I'm in. ExpressVPN has over 90 countries to choose from, so every time I run out of stuff to watch, I just switch to another country to unlock new shows. And here's the best part. It's not just for Netflix. You can use ExpressVPN to unlock shows on other streaming services, too. I'd like to use it to watch BBC iPlayer. It's free and only available in the UK. ExpressVPN is also super fast and works on your phone, laptop, even smart TVs so you can watch your shows on the big screen with zero buffering. So be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com slash broadwayradio. Don't forget to use our exclusive link so you can get three months free. That's express, E-X-P-R-E-S-S, V-P-N dot com slash Broadway Radio. Go to expressvpn.com slash Broadway Radio to learn more. And thanks again for ExpressVPN's support of Broadway Radio. The one, I, uh, the one show I ever saw in Boca Raton was Love, Valor, Compassion at the Caldwell Theater. Which I guess what you were too young uh, for, to have seen that, but that's the production that became very uh, controversial because there was, uh, uh, I don't know if it was an actual lawsuit, but uh, 
uh, Joe Mantello, you know, felt that they had recreated his direction wholesale, and that became a big deal. Did do you do you recall seeing any of that in the in the press? I don't, I don't, but that's really interesting. Yeah, you might want to look it up. It's really interesting. I don't know if that theater's still there. Uh, do you? I believe it is, or at least it was as far as you know, a couple years ago. Um, yeah, I definitely saw shows there though. Oh, okay, great. So I see in IMDb that um, that Be More Chill has been announced uh, to be uh, filmed. Uh, any word on that? And are you going to be involved with it as far as the filming of it? You know, not directly. We're obviously psyched that it's being made into a movie. But um, yeah, no, it was a whole big movie sale um, right in the midst of all the hype. And I know that one thing that's been great about all of that is that people have been able to continue to work on movies and TV that are musical theater related, even during the pandemic. So the Be More Chill movie is definitely, you know, in process. It's going to be really exciting. But it's like, you know, a whole big movie studio thing that's kind of like not my area of expertise, which is exciting and crazy. Well, it is really exciting, isn't it? Because uh, I believe basically finished our West Side Story and uh, um, In the Heights. And then we have Tick, Tick, Boom. And now uh, this news about, about um, uh, you know, what you, what you just told us. Uh, that, that's really it's quite yeah. exciting. <laughs> yeah. Getting these uh, getting these musical theater properties in front of larger audiences is something that I think feel as though uh, I, I, maybe it's anecdotal or maybe because it's the market that we're focused on, but I feel like in the last year when we've had no live theater that we've gotten more mainstream looks uh, to people who are not typical Broadway theater goers to see more shows. And, th- and that's been uh, a very interesting part about it. But what have you been doing during, you know, we talked about you wrote your you were writing most of your volume four during the pandemic have you been able to hit anything else on your to-do list that uh got suddenly freed up last march (laughs) you know yeah yes and no i think that like for a lot of us obviously over the last year it's kind of like learning how to vibrate at a different frequency you know things Hmm. were oh, today I just, you know, listened to a couple albums and went for a walk and like met a friend outside and now I'm going to sleep. It's, there was a weird, um, like, oh, we're not producing 10 shows and I'm not running a venue and, you know, writing a book. It, it, it definitely has not been like a hundred percent productivity, obviously, but, um, no, a lot of it was spent writing the book. Um, I definitely have been working on some other writing projects going like, oh, I've always wondered if I could write this or that. And I have a little bit more time. Um, I've spent, you know, a good amount of time working on the Tick, Tick, Boom movie. Um, we were a- we were you know shooting when the pandemic hit, and then we're able to start back up and safely make the movie during quarantine, um, and sold some of that stuff. Um, and yeah, I mean, certainly looking to next steps for projects, but essentially like you know producing projects on pause, um, and just you know as mentioned, a lot of conversations about doing fifty four below stuff and what the next era is going to be. Tell me about the genesis of Tick, Tick, Boom way back when. Um, who, whose idea was to say, look, we have these Jonathan Lawson shows, uh, songs, let's put them in a show. How did that happen? 
You know, it Ticket Boom was a show that he kind of wrote for himself. It was like his Eric Bogosian monologue of like, but in musical theater form. Um, and the idea to turn it into like a three person musical came from, you know, so many, he worked on it with a lot of friends, like Roger Bart was in it and Victoria Leacock produced readings of it. And there was this idea after he passed of like, this shows another side of him that we didn't get to see from Rent. Um, and it's like the next step in kind of like showing who he was. So, so, um, you know, it, it happened in 2001 off Broadway and it was expanded into like a three person musical. So uh, being direct, the movie being directed by uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, um, uh, do, do you ever have that moment where your phone rings <laughs> and it says Lin-Manuel Miranda on your phone? <laughs> I definitely do. I certainly do. Um, and do you freak out? Uh <laughs> Only in as far as like, it's been, uh, Lynn has been such a hero in terms of, I mean, truly this movie's going to be incredible. I wouldn't want anyone to be doing it but him. But he's also just been a hero of like, the past year has obviously been like, oh my God, I miss theater. I'm sad. I miss my friends. And then it'll be like, oh my God, Lynn's calling. And he has, you know, wants to talk about this thing about Jonathan Larson. And I'm just like, oh, thank God for Lynn. You know, it, it, yeah. <laughs> it's a great light of this year in a lot of ways. Um for me and I think for a lot of people working on the movie, but um, yes, definitely. And that said, you know, I've known Lynn since I was working on title of show and he was working on in the Heights and that was both at Kevin McCollum and Jeffrey Sellers office. So um, even though I was equally like, you know, in awe and impressed and starstruck by him, then there's that many years of like, Oh, it's Lynn. (laughs) (laughs) Also uh, you have Bradley Whitford playing Stephen Sondheim. Uh, (laughs) Now, now Brad is known uh, as, uh, as a, as a, a joke, and a cut-up. Uh, have you had to deal with that with him, you know, and uh, and say, hey, no, Stephen would not do that? <laughs> um, not personally, no. I, I didn't have that experience with him, but I, I'm, I, I have heard that, and I'm thrilled to him some time. Excellent. So, uh, you know, what's, um, what's your plan now for uh, the up- upcoming move into the warmer weather in the summer? Uh, anything new on the horizon that you are able to talk about? Um, yeah, you know, just honestly, kind of a little bit waiting for that moment. I think that, like, for all of us in theater, we we know that the call could come tomorrow that, hey, theater, it's definitely going to open June 1st. And for us who, like, you know, are producing or running venues or anything, that means, like, oh, my God, let's hit the ground now and here's all the things we need to do. So it's a little bit of, like, a waiting game. I will say that most of the rest of my week is being spent because my book comes out this week doing um, a bunch of, like, you know, book celebration stuff. But also I'm judging virtual Florida thespians this week like a shout out to my heritage so um, Mm. i've spent the past couple days also you know watching what would be happening in a conference room with thousands of high schoolers in tampa um but on my computer so it's just nice to like you know still have those kinds of things happening virtually um what's going to happen with the jonathan lawson project uh are are you going to do something uh to continue this project on after like tick tick boom gets released uh any 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 thoughts about how to uh 
bring uh, Jonathan's name to the forefront uh, again? And is it? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. You know, when the shutdown happened, that was something that we were actively working on. You know, we premiered the show at 54 Below as this like, you know, concert version song cycle. We're able to make an album of it. Um, I get messages from people every week that are like, oh my God, obsessed with the album. How do I do this show at my school? How do I, you know, sing this song? All of that. And the idea was always to kind of, maybe not always, but the idea quickly became like, let's do an actual you know, theatrical version of this, like, let's make this a show and be able to license it, be able to publish it, all those things. So, um, you know, we were very actively working on that back in March 2020. And certainly that's still the goal and the plan. And um, there will be like a next iteration of that, that we are kind of looking at next steps. Although um, I think for all of us, it's like, we know that this next era is coming, it's going to be great. Um, But like, when exactly will it be is still not totally clear. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right. Uh, what percentage of songs from Jonathan Larson have we heard? Would you guess? Um, you know, I, I guess between all of the projects that have been, you know, have been recorded and all of that, a, a decent amount. There's still songs of his that sit at the library. You know, when I first discovered um, Green Street, which was our opening of Jonathan Larson's project, and Piano, which is the closer, um, both of those nobody had ever heard, even when mm-hmm. you know, I obviously did interviews with a lot of his friends and family to understand him and the song for before I created the the project. Um, you know, those were sitting in the library. Those were like basically, you know, un- completely unheard. So there are a couple other songs like that, but the majority of songs at this point, I would say, are somewhere. It's the, the majority. <laughs> Mm-hmm. This just popped into my head. There's that song Boho Days. Is that the title? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is is that now was that in uh Tick Tick Boom when he did it as a solo piece? Yes, you know, Tick Tick Boom, it was it was in it at one point. There are definitely like cut songs from when he was developing Tick Tick Boom that um that have, you know, resurfaced on things like Jonathan Sings Larson. There was there's a really mm. Recording that of that, or um, you know, Boho Days is a bonus song on the original Tick Tick Boom cast album. So mm. there are definitely like a couple cut songs. There are obviously cut songs from Rent. You know, there are a whole musicals. There's Superbia, which we hear come to your senses. Mm, yeah, Superbia and Tick Tick Boom. So there's there's definitely still material. Uh, uh, well, uh, I brought it up because um, uh, Tick Tick Boom is a, a fairly quite a short show uh do you think there will be any music in the movie that was not in the show good question and can can you answer that question (laughs) i can't can't talk about that at all but but i will say you know obviously it's a movie it's not like a production of tick tick boom was filmed so it is its own thing and you know can't say but people should be very excited (laughs) (laughs) great So uh, I, I had another question. Oh, the the rent re- retrospective. Uh, I wanted did um, did the rent retrospective bring you back to when the first moment that you ever heard rent was, and and how has you know how has rent changed in as you've grown uh, as a as a person. You know, I think that, like, I've had a lot of interesting conversations over the last year about its relevance and thinking about that, because um, in some ways, rent is so about a specific moment in time in New York City, mm, yeah. in the middle of the AIDS pandemic, that it, people use the word dated to describe it, when what they really mean is that it's just about a very specific era. Right. Um, 
I think that anything that becomes as much of a phenomenon as and as popular has some kind of backlash, whether it's like, they should just pay their rent, ha ha ha. Um, and then you get, you know, during the pandemic, so much of like, you know, basically like rent, like basically there's a version of what happened in regards to like living in New York City during this that reflected on that, where I was like, those same people that are like, why don't those people pay their rent are literally like, you know, protesting of like, people shouldn't have to pay their rent during the pandemic. <laughs> It's, it's related. You know, I think that a lot of what Jonathan Larson was trying to say is so obviously relevant about um, social justice, about connecting with people during like, you know, times when at that point it was just like TV and all these other things that were disconnecting them. But it, everything has parallels to today. And I've definitely thought about that a lot in the past year. Well, speaking about thinking a lot, I mean, every now and then you'll hear somebody say, you know, if he hadn't died, this show wouldn't have been taking off the way it did. Um, do you have opinions about that? You know, I just don't think that anyone can ever really know exactly what would have happened. I obviously, you know, I do think it would have been a huge success. I think it would have moved to Broadway. But, um, you know, it's hard to say, like, exactly what would have been different. There certainly was um, a lot of, you know, a moment that happened in the zeitgeist because people were aware that he had passed away and then it made them pay attention to the show. I still think the show would have been, you know, a game changer and a hit. Um, You know, it's a lot of what ifs that we think about of, you know, so much of the material I found of his was so political when I dove into his archives. And obviously Rent is very political too. Um, but I just think the next show that he would have written and his friend, a lot of his friends think this too, would have been incredibly political. Like it would have been about like election season. It would have been about, you know, something um, mm. deeper in that way. So I, I think more of the what if of like, what musicals are we kind of missing? Um, and, you know, it's it's hard to say, but it certainly was interesting to hear from the original cast and team like 25 years later, um, because you do, like I think that they feel differently about it, maybe even than they did 10 years ago. It, it changes, I think, as you look at what happens in history. Tim Weil, uh, I'm sorry, Tim Weil, who made such a great contribution to the show as the original musical director, said such a wonderful thing in the tribute. He said, um, for all of the gifts, all the incredible gifts that all of us have gotten from Rent, I think we would give them all up if we could have Jonathan back. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. The, uh, something interesting that I, I read this week is that um, I, I reread Brantley's review of the off-Broadway production. Uh, and I, I, I don't think that Brantley was the type of person that was moved by external events such as maybe Jonathan's death. Uh, so I, I, I think that Rent was headed in that direction regardless because, uh, uh, you know, many people have said that, um, that Brantley's review was the impetus to move it to Broadway. And I think that that review was going to happen whether or not uh, Jonathan had passed away. So I think that it was on, on, in that direction already. I agree. Yeah. Uh, maybe Peter, Michael, and Jennifer, maybe you could answer this for me because I don't know this. Um, what, what, was there uh, another large production that came out of New York Theater Workshop before Rent of, of that stature? Before Rent? Yeah, I can't recall one. There may very well have been several, but I can't recall one. I don't think, I don't think there was. Certainly not of you know, what happened with Rent at that level, no. You know, I, I sort of thought of Rent as being, you know, New York Theater Workshop's equivalent of uh, the cor- uh, chorus line from uh, At the sure. Public. Yeah. Sure. Sure. And one thing I learned from, the, from this event the other night, I hadn't realized that uh, the theater had only fairly recently moved into that space uh, not long before 
rant. Uh, and in fact, apparently Jonathan Larson was uh, riding by in his bike one day and he <laughs> saw it under construction and he thought, oh, a new theater. <laughs> and he <laughs> and he stopped in and looked around and asked someone. Uh, I think maybe Jim Nicola was there and maybe he spoke to him that day. I'm not sure. But anyway, that that was the original impetus of Jonathan seeing the theater under construction because they had been um, elsewhere before that. I, I never saw anything before they moved. Uh, had, had any of you? I don't no. think so. I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us on Broadway Radio. Once again, you are one of our favorite guests to have on. The Untold Stories of Broadway, Volume 4, is uh, coming out this week. Uh, And you can get it everywhere that you can get books. Uh, We'll have links to that in the show notes. Also, there's an audible version of uh, some of the Untold Stories. Uh, Jennifer, don't wait until Volume 5 before coming back and visiting us again. Thank you. I'm so honored to be like one of the most frequent guests. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to see you, and uh, we'll talk to you soon, okay? Lily, thank you guys. All left, and there's Christine. 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 Someone wrote boyf on your backpack. I... (gasps) All right, with us we have another guest. Uh, Bob Ost is uh, joining us. Bob is the executive director of Theater Resources Unlimited, also known as True, T-R-U. And Bob, good morning. Thanks for joining us on Broadway Radio. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. So uh, TRU has been around, uh, you know, in my lifetime, seems like forever. But uh, tell, tell folks who are not familiar with uh, Theater Resources Unlimited what it is. Well, it's, it's, it's funny because I keep meeting people who say, gee, how come I never heard of you? Well, we've only uh-huh. been around for about 28 years. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. so I, I don't know why people haven't heard of us. We're, we're a producer's organization. Um, let me explain that. I'm actually a writer. You, all three of you know me as a writer. You yeah. actually knew me as writer, a writer before it had anything to do with True. Um, I, I wasn't getting produced. I was a playwright. I wasn't getting produced. And I thought that the reason I wasn't getting produced was because I didn't know producers. I was very naive. <laughs> but <laughs> but I, I started like hanging out with producers and uh, met a couple people and who were running theater companies and having a real hard time making anything happen. Uh, and I invited people to come to my apartment and meet each other. Um, so I invited three people and 30, 30 people showed up. Uh, so I, I realized, I guess it's, I think it's 28 years ago, uh, that people who were producing in New York were kind of not, they didn't know each other. They didn't know that anybody else was doing what they were doing. And they came into this room, my living room, and started talking about the challenges and the, and, and the successes. And uh, it was very therapeutic and very helpful for them, very healthy. And I realized at the end of, at the end of 90 minutes, I said, do, anybody want to do this again? And of course, everybody rose, raised their hand. And there I was suddenly running an organization. I think I'm, I think I'm, there's a place in hell for me for having for recommending that people self-produce. <laughs> but I do. I basically I encourage people if they're going to do it, they have to do it right. So I, we basically teach the business of theater. Everything we do is focused on people understanding the the business. Um, I 
one of the things I've learned over the years, and I've been doing this a long time, mm-hmm. I always hear from people, I always hear from writers in, in particular, who talk about how they were screwed by a producer in a, in a contract. It's like, no, you weren't. You signed something. You didn't read it. You didn't understand it. That's what happened. And so I try to get everybody to understand the business so that they can navigate this business in a, in a healthier way. Well, that's uh, that's really a, a, a great introduction because next Friday on March 12th, you have the How Literary Agents Are Navigating the New Virtual World, uh, which you're doing through this new uh, the, uh, true community gatherings via Zoom. And so how do people uh, – uh, do you have to be a member to, of of TRU to uh, do this, or can anybody show up, or how does this work? Any, anybody can show up. But basically, people have to email me uh, at T-R-U-N-L-T-D at AOL.com. Yes, I am a dinosaur. Do that again. Do that again. I'll put that in the show notes as well. All right. Okay. okay. Yeah. T-R-U-N-L-T-D at AOL.com. Ridiculous that I have an, I have an AOL account, but I do. Um, so they email me, and I, I ask everybody to put Zoom in the headline, and I ask them to make me laugh. So I like I like to see creative uses of the word Zoom in, in my subject header. Um, and then I put you on a list, and basically I send you the the, the link every week. Um, I started doing this back April seventeenth in March when we had the this shutdown. I shut down just like everybody else. I mean, I had no no idea what to do. I don't think any of us did. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody ever expects a Spanish Inquisition, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so here we are in this in this situation, and uh, I thought I was going to have to close true. I just didn't know what to do. I, I said this earlier. I literally was praying every day. Please, God, don't make me learn Zoom. Please, God, don't make me learn Zoom. <laughs> Um, eventually I realized that there was, there was no choice. It, it was either that or close. And I started planning everything on Zoom. Uh, my, my panels, I always did monthly panels. Uh, and I realized that it's not that different for people to be looking at four or five frames of, of uh, speakers on a Zoom uh, screen. It's not that much different from sitting and looking at four or five people sitting at chairs in the front of a room. So I started doing these weekly community gatherings Friday at 4.30. Um, I guess we should mention they're Fridays at 4.30. Uh, and 4.30 I, Eastern. Uh, 4.30 Eastern time, thank you, of yeah. course. And I have not missed a Friday since April 17th, with the exception of Christmas and New Year's. So I've done about I think we're heading towards our fiftieth show at this point. So let's uh, let's mention March twelfth. It's the literary agents. You have Beth Blickers, you have Susan German, you have uh, Samantha Harris, and you have Michael Moore. Uh, right. It all started all with Beth. It all started with Beth Blickers. <laughs> she's she's my from pal. APA, and yeah. she, and uh, that's the literary agents. And then on Friday, March nineteenth, you have uh, playwrights and what they've learned uh, over the last year: Melissa Bell, Richard Castle, T. Cat Ford, Melvina Deuce Manuel, Michelle Miller, and this guy Joe Nelms. This guy Joe Nelms. He's yeah. everywhere. Yeah, he, <laughs> he, yeah, he's he's written a play about Zoom. In fact. Um, <laughs> it was part of our benefit, in fact. Yeah, right, right. That's right. That's right. He wrote it. Fact. He wrote it for true. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. Um, so, uh, 
why has your uh, organization succeeded where so many people would think that something like this could not possibly last 28 years? Because I'm nuts and persistent. <laughs> well, also, uh, you know, you mentioned you prayed to God, you wouldn't have to learn Zoom. So unanswered prayers turned out to be important here, too, as well, apparently. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, there must have been some time at three o'clock in the morning when you were in bed looking up at the ceiling saying, should I continue? Um, that happens at least once a week. Uh-huh. Uh, it's, it's a regular occurrence in my life. Uh, if I don't say it, my husband says it. Uh-huh. <laughs> Is he in the business at all? Um, he's an art director, and he actually is a lyricist. He became he he, became, he was inspired to be a lyricist when when we got together. I see. And uh, he was he did the the BMI workshop. He's he's done really good work. Uh huh. Uh huh. All right. So, uh, Bob, thank you for joining us on Broadway Radio. We have all the information on the uh, the upcoming true true community gatherings on Zoom and uh, Bob's email address on in the show notes at broadwayradio.com so that you can email Bob and get in on these uh, on these Zoom calls. Bob, you, thank you so much for joining us. Well, you should add to it that on uh, March uh, 26th, I'm going to have uh, James Marino, Michael Portentier, and uh, Peter Felicia. Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> Is this because it's the 57th anniversary of Funny Girl opening? No? Oh, I just didn't. Okay. <laughs> of course, I have a funny, funny girl story for you sometime. Well, there you are. I'm glad I mentioned it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Bob. Have a great one. Okay. So, Peter, before we get on to trivia, Susan Charlotte is going to be do, uh, talking with Chris Durang. Well, um, yes, in conjunction with the fact that his play, For Whom the Southern Bells Tolls, uh, a parody of uh, Tennessee Williams' play, it was, it was part of uh, his um, Durang Durang show that was done at Manhattan Theater Club a long time ago. So uh, it's a parody of The Glass Menagerie more than anything else. But uh, anyway, it's going to be paired with Lifeboat Drill, uh, um, an obscure Tennessee Williams play. In that, Bob Dishy and Judy Grobart will be performing for whom the Southern Bells tolls. Uh, we um, have a cast of four with Blanche Baker, Jeremy Beck, Nathan Darrow, and Darlene Hope. Anthony Marcellus will be directing, as he does with uh, all of Susan's shows. And it's really quite wonderful that um, she continues to do this at Theater 80 St. Mark's, if you want to show up to tomorrow at two o'clock in the afternoon or um yes of course you know the word that's coming uh it will be available on zoom you can do that too um afterward there's going to be a discussion not only with chris durang but also with carol baker who appeared in baby doll a very controversial movie back uh in the 50s uh, based on 27 wagons full of cotton believe me there was a lot of sturm and drang about uh, that when that was um released way back then uh, it was a movie that um even people who weren't members of the catholic church condemned so um needless to say the catholic church did too but all things considered carol baker should have a lot to say that'll be of more than moderate interest and so of course will chris durang who's um always <laughs> a sensational wit as you will uh, certainly see if you do <laughs> tune in or show up at theater 80 st mark's tomorrow at two o'clock i'll be there i just <laughs> want to say i saw the, a production of for whom the southern bell tolls uh some years ago was it manhattan theater club yeah indeed yeah and it is absolutely hilarious mm. so i highly recommend it <laughs> yeah i've never laughed so hard at a reference to q-tip in my life. Anyway, I hope that intrigues you to see it. Because, it's a teaser uh, for you. Yes, indeed. That's what I'm here for. All right. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? 
Yeah, indeed. Um, and uh, <laughs> I was very surprised how well people did on this. I thought it was a tough question. So, so interesting. Once I think a tough uh, turn out not to be in just the opposite. Comparatively speaking, musicals don't have all that many songs that begin with the letter J. However, one Tony season, everyone who won a Tony in a musical category was in a show that had a song that began with the letter J. What Tony season are we talking about? What are the three musicals and what are the three songs? Well, the Tony season was 1956-57 when 10 Tonys were dispensed among three and only three musicals. My Fair Lady, which won six, has the song Just You Wait. Bells Are Ringing, which won two, has Just In Time. Little Abner, which also won two, has Jubilation T. Conpone. Tony Janicki remained in first place for the second week in a row. Do we think he had an edge because his last name begins with J? There may be something to that because Nikki Juvan got it too, (laughs) as those with first name Jay Birds, uh, Juliet Green, Jack Leshner, and Josh Israel. However, Steve Bell, Paul Witte, Brigadoon, Mike Meany, Sean Logan, Ian Tweedy, and Deb Popple got it too without having a J anywhere in their names. So I guess you just had to be smart. Okay, this week's question Broadway musicals are often colorful, but film musicals are often more so. And yet, there was a time when many a Broadway musical was filmed in black and white. Which was the last one to be so filmed? Hmm. And here's an equally important part of the question. Released. Hmm. Interesting. All right. So if you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, tell us what's in the musical moment this week. Well, as I said, I watched and very much enjoyed the Rent 25th anniversary uh, event online last week. And that got me thinking about uh, Rent again and revisiting it uh, in, in various incarnations. I, I had not listened, I had not actually listened to the original cast recording in some time, although certainly when it came out, I played it constantly. So I revisited that. Um, also, the wonderful video of the uh final broadway performance that i highly recommend as, as i think that's the best uh video incarnation of red you could find I, I did also look at the film version which did not do well i believe critically or financially uh and and i understand why but i do think it has some nice very nice moments in it i agree yeah uh, but anyway, and then I and then it occurred to me that I, I remembered something I probably haven't listened to in literally decades. The original cast recording has a bonus track of the song Seasons of Love featuring uh, the original cast with Stevie Wonder uh, oh, uh, in, yeah, a, in yeah. a, a yeah. slightly uh, different. I guess that the I guess you wouldn't say the arrangement is different, uh, maybe, uh, but it's mostly the the orchestration uh, or the bandstration. Uh, and there's uh, you know it's got harmonica in it because it's Stevie Wonder and, and mm-hmm. he's singing uh, the solo role, the solo parts in it. And it's really quite a wonderful recording. Uh, quite different from the original i would say a, a more up version of seasons of love if if you can imagine that uh and i haven't had not spent a lot of time listening to it over the years but i it was prompted to hear it again and and, and it, it really is uh, i think it's very intriguing and and very very pleasant to hear so that is our musical moment for this week all right 
So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. How do you measure, measure a year? In daylights, in sunsets.